and welcome to another episode of Hot Singles, the only good music podcast on the internet. Um, mm-hmm. I am joined by Autumn. Hi, that's me. I am a little sniffly today, so I apologize if uh, I sound that. Uh, you sound lovely as ever. Uh, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Um, <laughs> and we are joined by Hannah Yolo. Hello. I've never been sniffly in my life. I love that for you. <laughs> Hannah's far too graceful to ever be sniffly. That's just not a thing yeah. that's on our agenda. Um, we've got an agenda today and that agenda is to figure out what the fuck is emo yeah and to do so we have picked three albums none of which are emo (laughs) (laughs) yeah they're all Um, emo it's just that they have nothing in common (laughs) well family resemblances aside like we we could probably get into it with arguments about all of these about whether they're hashtag canonical emo but they're also really good and really interesting, and we're going to have a fun time talking about them. Yeah. So the albums we've got are Rights of Spring by Rights of Spring, uh, American Football, brackets one, by American Football, and Suburbia by uh, The Wonder Years, full title being Suburbia, I've Given You All and Now I Have Nothing. Is that right? Yep. There we go. Um, that is the albums in the order we're going to do them. Here's where the, the Rights of Spring track goes. Let's fucking get into this. <laughs> it's probably for want of, right? Yeah. 
So, Hannah, you were the one who brought along Rites of Spring. Yeah. Do you want to tell us who the hell they are? Um, yeah, so I guess to like step back a little bit, I'm the one who brought Rites of Spring here, and I'm also the one who suggested this episode um, as a sort of like historical study of emo through like being deliberately obtuse and like <laughs> clever with it. Um, Cause yeah, again, like if, if you just tell the typical person like, Oh, this is an emo record. They're not necessarily imagining something that sounds like any of these three records. Um, nope. And yeah, I think that that's something that's like especially apparent in rites of spring because like the way that they fit into this scene and this whole, like, you know, musical and historical movement, is that they are often considered the first emo band. Um, and what emo was short for at the time was emo core, which uh, the front man of Rites of Spring, Guy Picciato, said was, quote, the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard as a <laughs> genre descriptor. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's something that we're going to see a lot. Like, I, I, I think... Not necessarily with all of these three bands, but, like, there's a rich history of emo bands saying that, like, we're not emo, emo is stupid, nothing is emo. So, like, <laughs> if, if your complaint about the albums that we chose for this episode about the history of emo is that none of them are emo, then, like, buddy, nothing is emo. Um, <laughs> so, like, the idea behind that being something on the lines of what wasn't emotional about the actual hardcore punk bands that yeah. we're, like, taking direct inspiration from. Yeah, yeah so... Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I think that, like, what Rites of Spring is most directly taking inspiration from is, like, obviously the DC hardcore scene of, like, the mid-80s. The whole, like, Revolution Summer scene. Um, But also, like, it's it's interesting because there's obviously a lot of, like, idolization there in that, like, the the guys who are in Rites of Spring very clearly were, like, huge, huge fans of Ian McKay's work as teenagers. And, you know, they ended up forming... uh, two of them did a band with Ian McKay uh, called Fugazi, which turned out to be, you know, a- immensely influential on all other sorts of music. Yeah. It didn't mm. work for themselves. Yeah. But like, there's, there's that sense of like idolization and of wanting to kind of like live up to the standard of the, the music that you really love and become like part of the scene that you really love, but also like a, a huge discontent with the scene. Um, a lot of it is like, I know that Autumn was talking about basically, um, as they were like listening to this record about like, yeah, this is really good, but I don't know how this is different than like other eighties hardcore. Like, yeah, I, I, I am not a like huge, like punk person. Um, but I definitely had a like big punk phase, like in high school. And mm-hmm. I was really into like X, the descendants, bad brains, uh, dead Kennedys. Um, and having not listened to a lot of that music in a couple of years, I was like, well, this is just exactly like all that other stuff. Yeah. Um, and then I like listened to Milo Goes to College on Thursday. I was like, oh, I see what Rites of Spring is doing different. I think like at a distance, it's hard to see. But like when I play them back to back, like Milo Goes to College and Rites of Spring, I was like, okay, I, I see how this changes things. Yeah. But by the way, uh, if we want extra homework for this episode <laughs> there are albums that <laughs> we are not going to be talking about but that you absolutely should listen to to like understand some of the the historicity and the the lineages um that we're talking about here milo goes to college is absolutely one of those um repeater by fugazi would be another and then 
I'd say probably Double Nickels by Minutemen. Um, and those are kind of like the the bands that and, and the record specifically that are going to be in the shadow of a lot of what we're discussing. I I should also real quick just note that um, part of my another part of my confusion about how is this different is that I misremembered Red Medicine as coming out the same year as this, not 10 years after this. Because <laughs> Red Medicine is 95 and I'm like, I, I thought it was 85 and I was just like, this is just it's just like Red Medicine. <laughs> and so that was definitely like once i like looked into fugazi for two seconds i was like oh right duh okay (laughs) guy who's only listened to fugazi getting a lot of fugazi vibes for this right this big record (laughs) yeah um Uh, i just want to ask autumn like I didn't, so I, I said this, I don't think it's embarrassing or anything like that, but I never really had a punk face because I went straight in for post-punk. That was the thing that was already like around when I, yeah, yeah, yeah like a lot of British indie music is just like fully in the shadow of New Order or whatever. Um, and that means that like, you have to go out looking if you want to go for a punk face. So to your ears, what is different between like the... Yeah, like Molly Goes to College, the Sens record, and this. Because I don't have as good a sense as you do, I don't think, at least. Um, so, like, a lot of my, like, high school punk phase is motivated by, like, uh, and we'll get into this with the Wonder Years a little bit, like, pop punk is not a thing that I got into, but is, like, the sound of my childhood in a lot of ways, because it was, like, mm-hmm. so dominant on the radio um, in the 2000s, even if it was not my thing. God, so, America is strange. <laughs> it, like, Fall Out Boy and My Chemical Romance were just the biggest bands in the world when I was, like, a very young person. Um, yeah. I didn't get into those for, for various reasons that we'll get into, but I did, like... I remember, like, even as a very young person, like, um, being interested in, like, music history stuff, and so, like, I was like, okay, I don't like this, like... I'm not into this, like, pop punk that's on the radio, but, like, I liked Green Day. What are the bands that Green Day likes? And I kind of went backwards and ended up at, like, a... um, Being really into, like, the Ramones um, and the Stooges and Sex Pistols and whatever, the Clash. um, And the, like, 80s hardcore stuff that comes immediately after that, I just think of as, like, being, like, extremely fast and... Um, these guys are not very good at like playing their instruments, but that's not what matters. Um, uh-huh. And so like Milo goes to college or those first couple dead Kennedys records are just like, there is no melody. It yeah. is just like three chords played as quickly as we possibly can. The rights of spring guys, I don't think are like master musicians, but at least know all the frets on the guitar and know what different notes are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And like, I I think of it as kind of like, um, the idea of like progression and then conscious, uh, turnaround of that progression. Right. And that like, yeah, a lot of what the DC hardcore scene was about is just kind of like taking the ideas of punk to its limit. And like, I, I think it's most apparent to me, like if you listen to like, minor threat songs like if you listen Mm -hmm. to straight edge then that's like a 45 second song that manages to like get so much in because it is just like playing those three chords over and over again like the fastest speeds possible like you know singing out a manifesto that takes less than a minute 
Um, right. Whereas, like, there was kind of always going to be a breaking point where it's like, well, okay, well, what do we do to kind of evolve or branch off from this scene and this sound that isn't about making it go faster? And Right to Spring is definitely that. Before we get into, though, like, the, I think the kind of musical differences that are really interesting to me and that make me love this record so much, um, I also want to just briefly touch on how, like, there was a sense of live performance ethos that was also, like, very mm-hmm. much, like, marked as a turning point here. In that, mm-hmm. like, you know, the, the Rights of Spring only played, like, I think less than, like, 20 shows before they broke up. Um, and they were, like, openly weeping on stage during, like, most of those shows. And it's, it's this sense of, like, you know, obviously emo is like known at this point as this very like sort of emotionally open and, and an effusive genre but like so much of what writes a spring is about as like a uh, an ethos of like going to their show and being part of that emotional experience is the idea of like bearing stuff that would otherwise be like way too difficult to ever get out um and i i, I don't want to overgeneralize about this because like it's super easy for like people who think about like the history of emo to just be like oh right to spring invented everything no one was like putting emotion into music beforehand you know Mm -hmm. but like i i think that the the dc hardcore scene is one that like if there were emotions uh associated with it then it did tend to be ones that were a little more like abstracted and and distant um if only through the lens of like making something into like a cause or a movement or a statement right um mm-hmm. and that's like what minor threat was all about right they, they had songs about you know veganism they had songs about like treatment of women at their shows they had songs about straight edge and um this is a very conscious effort to just be like there's something that is really hurting all of us in a scene that we are not talking about and that we are abstracting into a layer of like righteous fury at the world. But like, we are all clearly like incredibly fucked up and like, it is cathartic in a, in a very elemental way to just be able to like, one of my favorite songs on this record is a uh, theme where the, the, the hook is just, and if I started crying, would you start crying? Now I'm crying, why aren't you crying? And it's like, mm. that's really the, the, the nut of it, right? That like, you can take a step back from trying to like, wrap everything that you're saying in these sort of like, higher ideas of like, you know, I'm punk and that means that I'm principled in my anti-authoritarian statement, and say that like, well, you know, I'm punk and what that means is that like, I am able to to cry instead of like you know uh, fully buying into this like macho bullshit that's been foisted on us. Um, so that's kind of like where a lot of the emo kind of lyricism and 
you know, cultural identity springs from. Um, again, huge influences from other bands that have nothing to do with Rites of Spring, but I think mm-hmm. it is really interesting to kind of like chart, and I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, but like the way that Rites of Spring talk about emotions versus the way that American football talk about emotions versus the way that Wonder Years talk about emotions are very interestingly different in a way that mm-hmm. kind of like charts the the landscape of like what is possible. Um, here, the lyrics are like very, I think straightforward um there is like a a sense of poeticness to them but like the trick that kind of picciato uses over and over again is like um rhyming a very sort of long and like effusive uh you know stanza with a very short and punchy one um we've been talking about Mm. for want of right probably the most iconic song for this record and like the the hook of that goes, and I woke up this morning with a piece of the past caught in my throat, and then I choked. And it's that sense of like something that is a little effusive and a little like kind of uh, deliberately poetic, and then a very short gut punch that follows up on it. That's a trick that they go back to time and time and time again with this record, and it works on me every time, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I I think like shifting it very slightly towards the musicality, mm-hmm. some part of that has something to do with like the structuring of these tracks. Like, it's so notable to me that like yeah, you talked about it. Like, this is clearly like I I asked what you both thought about like how this isn't just make it go faster punk. Yeah. Um, yeah, part of it really is about like multiple sections finding ways of developing, finding ways of adding like pain and anguish that develops over time but then resolves back into the thrashy stuff like there is an underlying bedrock of like just punk stuff here that gets complicated and then it slams back into the punky stuff like that same progression through tension and then slamming back into some kind of more brutal but still resolved like situation it's like an arc that like chorus to or chorus or middle eight to verse like goes through with all of these tracks and you know it's a musical mm-hmm. trick that they use to kind of like represent that duality so often on this record? It's the guitar versus the bass. Um, yeah, the guitar yeah. is still yeah. often thrashy stuff. Like there are riffs on this record, which is also like a big difference from like yeah. you know what was happening in DC just like earlier that summer. Um, but like, you know, a lot of the guitar is still just based around like repeating chords, creating this sort of like, you know, wall of aggression. Um, and, and stuff that's, like, not fully distinct on a lot of the songs. What is remarkably distinct on a lot of these is the bass. And, like, yeah, the, it is some of the, like, highest tones on a bass that I've ever heard. <laughs> like, the, the, the bass is, like, often higher than the guitar. As, and it's just used as this sort of, like, very melancholy undercurrent, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Th- that I used the word lyrical when we were discussing this early. There are some moments where, like, very clearly the bass is playing the melody lines. There yeah. are also moments where the bass becomes chordal or gets used for those sorts of, like, very split, arpeggiated, like, riffs or whatever that, like, very much give that the space where you fully expect it to just be, like, underpinning the bottom end of the track. It's such a beautiful, beautiful way of writing the bass lines. And also, like I said, like, this, to me, ties it so heavily, not towards the, like, post well to some degree towards the post hardcore stuff but more towards like the indie rock stuff yeah the stuff that was like um like giving 
yeah <laughs> giving very very different like lines out of late 80s stuff um, yeah like you which know was, mm-hmm. it's just it clearly this scene ties to more things than just uh, the one end punk and hardcore and the other end emo which is really cool because like that sound using the bass in that like chordal and lyrical and melodic first way is like a thing that i'm intensely familiar with because it's like all the 90s and 2000s bands were using it really really special yeah absolutely um another thing that i'm really thinking about like the composition of these songs is that like again i mentioned that like minor threat stuff is like less than a minute a lot of their songs and like everything on this record is like in kind of standard rock songwriting ranges where it's like here's a three and a half minute song here's a five minute slower song right yeah Um, but a lot of them are still compositionally kind of similar to these like one minute songs that they're drawing from so it's a question of like well how do we take that and expand it and Mm -hmm. on the kind of just musical end a lot of that is done through like letting those bass lines just kind of float along and represent stuff that is like difficult to express in like what is what should be like the main melody through guitars um and then like you know as far as lyrically there's a lot of repetition on this like very very consciously and like the Mm -hmm. the album doesn't necessarily coalesce into like a thesis statement until the final track uh end on end um which is interestingly like one of the first ones that they ever wrote like they wrote this song when they were like I think like 16, 17 years old. Um, but like the, the thesis statement of that is of like tying the whole work of like, you know, emotional, like self introspection to the Stravinsky ballet rites of spring, which like, I'm not sure like how much you two are like familiar with that as a, mm-hmm. as a word. Zero. Of... <laughs> yeah. I am familiar with it enough, but I, I don't know how it ties in like lyrically thematically okay so Um, have they done it two two important things about rites of spring right number one um it is uh stravinsky talking about like uh uh russian pagan religious traditions and specifically like these spring festivals where they would um choose like a sacrificial maiden to dance herself to death basically as a way of um you know, as like the the like little spoken interlude at the very end of the album says, propitiate the god of spring, right? That like her sacrifice, her kind of like exerting herself through death in this like very highly emotional way is something that is necessary for the coming of spring and thus of like renewal. Um, and that's kind of like the whole premise of what this album is, is that like confronting like these most difficult emotions that you have is like unbelievably painful and something that you're kind of doomed to do again and again and again and on end but it is also something that is like fundamentally necessary for new growth to come in um and you're just going to be stuck in winter if you don't you know do any of that the other Mm. interesting thing about rites of spring is that it was very famously um and i i'm not like the biggest expert on this stuff so i i don't want to be (laughs) oversimplifying it but it was very famously like panned when it first came out and there were like riots when it happened because like, oh, this is like a, a composition for a ballet, but like it is the most aggressive thing that we have ever heard in this whole like musical yeah. form. <laughs> like like it, it got the reputation of like opening the era of musical modernism. Like exactly. that on its own is the, is the like big statement that goes towards it. And like a, a more conservative music going and particularly ballet, uh, ballet attending crowd just like fucking detested it yeah yeah which like you know i i think it's interesting for them to like 
to take on that level of like illusion as like the the core of what their band is about um when they were deliberately being less aggressive than what came before them but like i do think that there is a very like valid parallelism right about like the 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 propitiation of like a a more sort of raw sense of emotional expression and like the the expressing of things that were like considered taboo or considered like too difficult to to put into words is now like our project um so you know rights of spring uh, blah, blah, blah. the right of spring the Stravinsky piece is uh like one of my favorite like pieces of you know early music um and i I, I just love its influence on this, which is one of my favorite bands. It all ties in together very, very lovely. Amazing. And and like, if there is a thing that marks out modernism and then like the rights of spring in general, it's like chromaticism and the like a modernist compositional technique forcing you away from like, you know, the very diatonic, very well-worn stuff that feels comfortable, even if it is very expressive. And just all the, like, my favorite bits of this record are all the bits where, like, I did not expect a punk band to songwrite the way that they songwrite. Like, my favorite track in this record is Deeper Than Inside. Which, yes. Yeah. Um, is four bars of thrash and then just modulates the, the semitone. Um, it's one of the most stunning and most effective bits of rock songwriting I've ever heard. It's incredible. I love it so, so much. It's beautifully simple and also completely unexpected and hits me every fucking time. Just like a mallet in the side of the head every time it modulates. really really cool record and, <laughs> so like, you know it's it's the sort of thing that we've been talking about like his influence time and time again right um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and something that has been really fascinating to me uh and that like i really didn't know because i i've been a fan of a lot of like emo um throughout uh you know my life uh at various different points like going back and picking up more and more but like the sense of what actually led to what was like something that was very difficult for me to wrap my head around until I like deliberately approached this project. And I spent a lot of time over the last couple of weeks, like going onto Wikipedia, tracking down interviews, just trying to figure out, okay, all these different bands, who do they say are their influences? And then who did those bands say are their influences? And then who did those bands say are their influences? And how do we get back to Rites of Spring ultimately? Um, and a lot of it goes through like these very, very different and unique paths. Which, like, I think as a sense of, like, kind of cultural movement and, like, musical lineage, there's a lot of tension here historically. Because there were a lot of, you know, fans of this, like, early scene, like, the first wave emo that comes out of the DC hardcore scene, that really disavow anything that isn't part of that, like, immediate, immediate lineage. Um, There's, like, a famous copy pasta that goes around... um, that like you know is is somebody yelling about how like oh uh, american football is just as much of like you know fake emo as like any mall emo and like the only real emo is part of the dc hardcore scene of the 1980s 
<laughs> and it's so oh, it's so funny that like you know there are bands that like you can th- that a lot of people will say very reasonably oh that's not actually emo that's like influential on emo that's at the edge of emo that's something that like is relevant when talking about the history of the scene but that's not emo itself and then there are other people who will talk about the exact same band in incredibly like fervent terms and say this is actually the only emo band <laughs> Yep. <laughs> cool. cool. It makes me feel better because I did have like a, a a minor crisis doing this episode. Like, I don't even know what emo is anymore. I thought I do, and I didn't. And it's just incredibly validating to hear no one knows what it is. Yeah, it's fine. I, I, I'm <laughs> glad I never thought I knew in the first place. <laughs> I 100% believe that because, like, I I I'm sorry to put you through that. <laughs> No, no, it was enjoyable. Like, I had a great time, so. Yeah, like, I, I think that deliberately choosing, you know, like, we, we didn't choose, for example, like, I don't know, the Get Up Kids or a Dashboard Confessional or, like, any of these bands, that, like, if you're thinking about, like, a 2000s mall emo kid, right, with the, like, swooped hair and, you know, like, probably has what would have been at that time, like, a live journal, um yeah then you know what is that kid listening to um it's none of these bands right but like what i have found is that like emo is an incredibly useless term as far as describing what a band is actually like and you know what Mm -hmm. their their music is like but it's an incredibly fascinating term that i want to dive into because of like the sense of historicity behind it um, and like yeah. with any types of musical movements, it's fun to chart like who had an influence on who and, and so forth. But the idea that like this is a subgenre of a subgenre, right? Of a of a subgenre. Right. This is like punk is a, a subtype of rock. Hardcore punk is a subtype of punk. Emotional hardcore punk is a subtype of hardcore punk. And uh-huh. that little bit of kids playing basement shows in dc in 85 is something that is unrecognizable in a lot of what hit is ultimately influenced but that has created this very interesting sense of lineage um and it's just so cool to think that like you know that that's something that ostensibly minor like these bands that all like broke up before they ever really released much and only played like you know 20 live shows um, could have had mm-hmm. such a profound effect on like the modern landscape of music. Yeah, which of course, I I I don't know necessarily like where we want to like talk about this in the span of this episode because um, it's not really about any of the bands that we're talking about. But like, pop emo is having a huge resurgence right now, like again. Um, right. Like I. I mentioned this in our like group chat as we were preparing for this episode, but like I went to the gym the other day and um, their playlist that they had went straight from one of Olivia Rodrigo's pop emo songs into a Willow pop emo song into an MGK pop emo song into one of Avril wow. Lavigne's new songs. And it's wow. just like, <laughs> man, I I knew that this stuff was kind of bubbling up and that like, you know, nostalgia for, for these kinds of scenes was something that was like, uh, uh, kind of motivating some, some musicians these days, but like, I did not realize it was quite that pervasive, (laughs) (laughs) which Alexis, I know you had talked about that being a real head trip because it never crossed over the first time. No, like 
so I'm looking a very like uh, the the thing I had in mind, the thing that got me on this this line of thought is like, what do I think of when I think more emo? And I think just as you were saying, my like uh, emo song in my head is "Welcome to My Life" by Simple Plan, which I don't think most people would classify as emo in the first place. But I'll put that aside for now. Uh, now I have to like see if I could conjure up the music video for this in my mind to figure out if I know which simple plan song this is. Um, it's the one that goes, do you ever feel like breaking down? Do you ever feel out of place? That's the the, the first lyrics are the only one that I remember. And that's okay. I think it, it's an emo song. Uh, but yeah, like there was a, there was a small moment where uh, Black Parade was on like the UK's MTV. Um, mm-hmm. It never really like stuck around in Europe particularly well or long. Um, I remember Foo Fighters were crossing over, well, not crossing over, they were already very, very large. But like the the like mid-period Foo Fighters stuff was like much more popular than any of the emo stuff was yeah. probably considered just as cool. And what was happening anyway was like, this was the last ish throws in the sort of like 2000 and I'm guessing like six to 10 period, but probably the last and most extravagant throws of like the UK's like very, very large, very dominant indie scene. Um, and that was a thing that like survived up until the record industry collapse, um, up until like uh, guitar bands stopped being profitable <laughs> and disappeared. <laughs> also, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, remember very... guitars? No, nah, no, barely. Um, but yeah, like this is this is an era where, oh my god, the Kooks, the Fratellis, Block Party, um, Kaiser Chiefs. God, you're Chiefs. so British. No, yeah, just just this whole like suite of um of bands Razor that, Light. Like, yeah, oh my god. Ar- early yeah. Arctic monkeys. Um, yeah, exactly. So this uh, is the thing where like the whole of the the like most of the twenty uh, of the of the of the two thousands, like obviously there are there are sections where there's like like the the last of girl group stuff, UKG, um R and B stuff, mm-hmm. um like dark, like chart house music. Um but like one of the big like things that dominated the chance was the UK's indie scene, which just generated Everything from Coldplay through Block Party as like both the most trad and coolest stuff was all in this like long extended thing. <laughs> it, it, it dies very suddenly because the record industry collapses. Um, yeah. But like what follows in its wake is the UK's like own like pretty much like native electronic music like explosion um, and like how it transforms the pop charts uh, to an extent. I, but I'm... yeah, like. That meant that meant that like I could find cool emotional indie music, but that was like local bands who like like London bands who like are friends of friends of friends who I can go see it in an underage show, mm-hmm. but are playing like slightly jangly Smithy like post Smithy indie rock rather than mm-hmm. you know this. Yeah, because like a lot of that um, kind of like UK indie that you're talking about like has a huge lineage from post punk, but like oh yeah, it's really more of like the you know the it's post-punk rather than post-hardcore, right? Like, I... Yeah, exactly. Like, it is... Um, <laughs> it's like, Gang of Four is like a buttress point yes. beyond which no one will ever go. Um, it's like a lot of New Order, a lot of Smiths, a lot of Cure, a lot of, like, mm-hmm. uh, 80s, like, new wave pop music. Yeah. And, like, you know, the, the like, early 2000s revival. Like, all of these bands were growing up in the strokes. Yeah, because there's, um, there's a lot of, um, like... A, a lot of U.S. bands where it's like, again, you can't 
look at any of their uh, like Wikipedia pages or interviews of them without like tripping over a mention of Fugazi, right? Like yeah, Fugazi yeah, was yeah. tremendously mm-hmm. influential on like the the U.S. version of like the indie scene um, throughout like the the two thousands, but like it feels very fascinating but also like very understandable that it got kind of cordoned off and that like i don't really hear a lot of like fugazi influence in like the the uk indie stuff of that genre like at all Mm -mm. yeah it was strange that when there's a small corner of it which took from the like again more indie rock stuff and the post-rock stuff so it would have been sonic youth yola tango broken social scene that being like a separate lane Mm -hmm. um much more on the like post art indie stuff um that like that got some pickup and traction and you get a band like Bombay Bicycle Club, which has had a couple number one UK albums and very much is in like, like post that lane rather than post the like Cure um, Smiths lane. Mm-hmm. Eh, they're, they're all, everyone in the UK has listened to the Smiths too much, which is a, <laughs> which is a criminal thing, but you know, yeah. uh, we, we learn to deal with it. Um, but like that, that's our model for being emotional. Like we have Morrissey. <laughs> It's tragic, but we have Morrissey. <laughs> yeah. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I, I think that level of, like, kind of... Because Morrissey is, like, a good touchdown for it. It's because, like, being sort of hyper-literate and, like, very kind of, like, um, upfront about your references and the fact that you are well-read and that, like, you you view your ability to sing about emotions through the lens of novelists being able to write about emotions is something that like absolutely like uh suffuses a lot of that like 2000s revival scene like i was i was listening to um the first block party album again recently and like first off it holds up love that record but it's It's also like oh man this is really pretending how much they would become insufferable Brett Easton Ellis heads. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this is the thing, like, part of the appeal was it kind of was already insufferable, like, inscrutable, mm-hmm. very much, a, like, neuro- neuroticism is the dominant mode of emotional, like, the dominant emotional register being neuroticism. It's just, like, yeah. shot through with a lot of the, particularly post-punk revival end of things. Yeah. But, like, a lot of the general British stuff is, like, that's the, that's the angle it took. Um, and yeah like well, we have to deal with it like we're british what what, what do you expect from us? <laughs> all right um it feels like we haven't been talking about right to spring for a while yeah <laughs> and, oh like to God. be clear this this is an episode that could go on for hours just talking about like the history of associated movements but exactly um we have two other records yeah, so the, yeah. the only other thing I wanted to add about Rise of Spring is they're going off on who influenced who thing. Like, I just looked up, did Sonic did Sonic Youth ever play with Rise of Spring? And apparently they did in Cleveland in 1985. Incredible. Um, I wanted to know that. Okay. Secondly, um, Thurston has already, uh, many times shout out uh, Minor Threat as an influence on him. But like, uh, the as I talked about before, like the thing that Rise of Spring are doing with their like, uh, chromatic modulations is not the same thing that Sonic Youth would be doing with the like parallelisms and major minor mixture stuff like Sonic Youth and what well, and altered tuning stuff like they are getting awkward and like more harmonically adventurous stuff in different ways so like I feel like slight divergences in trajectory where like one starts to drift towards like drones and atonality and the other drifts towards just like Hey, maybe more mathsy, more like harmonically formal and Ooh. expansive exploration. Mathsy um, emo. Can, what would that sound like? Mathsy emo. Who, who could, 
the record that I have brought is... <laughs> <laughs> um, yes! American Football by American Football.
and yeah. Released in 2016. Wait, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Um, we are, of course, talking about the 1999 version. Version. Yeah. Uh, the 1999 record. For, for um, those who are not aware, they've released, like, I think, what now, three albums called yeah. American Football? And it was like a hiatus of like 15 years before I started releasing yeah. more. 19, longer. Uh, oh, wow. Ni- uh, 2016. So 17 years Jesus. to, to um, LP2 and 2019. Another three for LP3. Cool. I <laughs> we could get into the actual like stuff of this record in just two seconds. I just noticed that if you go to the Wikipedia page for American Football 1999, um, it will give you the track titles and then the tunings of the guitars for oh, each yeah. one. And only one of them is the fucking standard tuning. I hate these guys. Yeah. <laughs> they very deliberately made every single track in a different tuning. <laughs> they also, they make jokes about this. They make jokes about like, it was a, when we, when we reunited, it was because it was about time for some 40 something year olds to be emotional on stage and tune a lot of guitars for a very long period of time. Like that was the, the quote, like, this is their bit. Their bit yeah. is being insufferable. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Re- American football is an incredibly insufferable band that I dearly love. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, we should we we should explain what this band is in yeah. uh, like just a second. But I just wanted to like, I I did not like this record until like my fifth time listening to it this morning, uh, where I was like, <laughs> oh, this is good actually. So th- just like. <laughs> context for where i'm coming at this from like came into this like kind of low on it until literally this morning i'm like oh no it's good actually okay (laughs) (sighs) but we should explain what this record is yeah yeah um i guess that falls to me even though i'm probably the least qualified to say anything about it so more qualified than me hey fair enough and less Um, qualified than me (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, American Football is a 1999 record by the band also called American Football Um, am I right in thinking they needed to quickly bash out a recording session before they all left college in Abena, Illinois yeah Um, Yeah, yeah. um, and very quickly put together an instrumental forward um, quite atmospheric and quite mathsy emo album um, which effectively birthed a subgenre of a subgenre of a subgenre, Midwest emo. Yeah. Their, um, um, by the way, very quickly, their uh, alma mater, uh, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, is where like 60% of my high school graduating class went. Um, <laughs> so I, I have a, a, a connection to them in that sense. Nice, lovely. Did that? Did, I mean, like, I don't know whether you were like exactly the right time period for the like the college kids to be swamped by Midwest emo. I was, exactly it was a little time, later, right? Like, 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 um, yeah, yeah. I, I think I've mentioned this before, but like, I went to high school with the Smith Westerns, and that's like a sort of very jangly and ethereal sound of like two thousands indie rock. That like, mm-hmm. you know, I I wouldn't be surprised if they were like influenced by American football in some sense, but like. It feels like there's there's kind of a distance between it at that point where it's like, you know, more probably influenced by an influence, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah, this is a band that plays very few live shows, disappears for a while, um, and then gains sort of like a cult following because this record, like, has a very, very, like, it, like incredibly positive reception, mm-hmm. critical, critical darling status. 
Um, it's event- also become a very, like, it's very heavily memed in a lot of places. Oh, my God. Like, the American football house is like a, a yeah. generation's uh, gex tree, like... The, exactly. <laughs> the item on a on a piece of artwork that is actually a real place that inspires pilgrimages and like uh if if you're in another lane this is the um obelisk from R plus seven by OPN. Like this is like the icon on the album artwork that like becomes the figurative stand in for like all the associations of an entire like scene, genre, collection of people, all that fun stuff. Yeah. Um this album feels so strongly like early Pitchfork, and then I see how that mutates into into Mew and Anthony Fantano. Like it's just so easy to like see how this yeah. like. So the, <laughs> the weird one about that is Pitchfork have never been in love with this record. They gave it a seven point five originally, and only upped it to an eight point nine on re review, mm-hmm. which isn't <laughs> overwhelming. <laughs> Sorry, 8.6, I can't even read. 8.6 on refill. I love how cowardly they are. Also, uh, so fucking cowardly. Alexis, since since you mentioned it, I did just find the American football house on Street View, and I'm going to be zooming in and out on it for the rest of this discussion. Yes, yes, perfect. What do you think is more insufferable, uh, living in the American football house or living in the John Egbert house? <laughs> oh, oh my God. I'm not prepared to think about this. Fuck my brain. I I honestly wouldn't know. Like I would imagine the uh, Egbert House just because like oh, Homestuck fandom. I, I know what they're capable of in other arenas, but like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I I know for sure that like people do make pilgrimages to the American Football House so you can take oh, yeah. pictures. Actually. I swear I swear I saw things about like paid bus tours through Urbana. Jesus. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Um. But okay, this is the register of album we're dealing with, where um, this is inspired like devotees and yeah. like an entire scene and like, like kind uh, kind of guy, in the wake of this album. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the scene uh, yeah. that this is considered to be like part of and also kind of spawning is what's called Midwest emo, and yeah. it's very tricky because Midwest emo means two things, right? It can mean uh, literally emo bands that come from the midwest and so that can include shit like the promise ring right that can include shit like i think jawbreaker um but like a lot yeah, of stuff that jo- just kind of jawbreaker like, for sure yeah that, that that just kind of falls into the lineage that like eventually contributes to like pop emo um mm-hmm. and uh, we're gonna see the promise ring a little later stay tuned um Ooh. but uh <laughs> it can also mean bands that sound like american football um which like <laughs> that makes it a very frustrating thing to like talk about with like we were talking about how emo is a meaningless genre right and that like oh does this count does this count midwest emo an attempt to make that more specific and defined is itself a useless terminology <laughs> because like it can mean one of these two very different things um but yeah like what would you consider i guess like the the sort of sonic hallmarks of this and then i i have like my thoughts on where the lineages come from but i i want to yeah. hear us like talk about the music first so the, the, with the midwest thing it's uncomfortable because i hear this in a meeting just like like why is this not just described as variously indie rock or post-rock um yeah yeah, I, I I heard this and my mind immediately went to Broken Social Scene. Yeah, you know? the, so I, we mentioned on the Broken Social Scene episode that like 
this is a Doom XE Think project in my head. Like, there is one track at least I will pull up exactly which in my head. But it was just like, the only thing that stops us from being a broken social scene track, uh, sorry, a Doom XE Think track, sorry, for clarity, for case people are unaware broken social scene a band we talked about on this podcast before a bunch of their members are also in a more expansive instrumental led um uh post-rock project called do make say think um, one of my favorite bands um the one of the the only reasons that i can i think it might be instructive to like what are the differences between like that line of post-rock and this mm-hmm. guitarto um this mm-hmm. is less overdriven like i feel like every post-rock and indie rock guitar has a cheap screamer on that's like quite low and quite crunchy and these are a lot more trebly and twangy i've i hear a lot more um fret buzz i hear a lot more like of the the very very metallic like the the the, the rattling of the guitar yeah in this record that might just be recording technique stuff and maybe they don't have that in other records i haven't listened to them what I will like, say is that, like, I think that's kind of become a hallmark of like the Midwest emo sound, even if it was okay, something the, that was like originally just just based an in, accident of production. Yeah, stuff. but like the idea of kind of using various parts of like the guitar as as mm-hmm. like parts of your sonic landscape, right? And like kind yeah. of there's a lot of um, slide stuff that happens in later uh, Midwest emo, um, mm. just as far as like kind of using that like running your fingers along the the frets as a as another like piece of what you can do with it and just like yeah. trying to be like with just one guitar what is the broadest kind of like uh, uh sonic landscape that we can you know create and like rich is a very good word for this warm is a very good word for this because like you know we're talking about the one trick that these bands use right the trick that yeah. american football uses so often is to have a very intricate melody of like high notes very like high up on the neck of the guitar and then have one really low note on a string that's not going to get played in any of the high noodley stuff. Um, yeah, such exactly. that like that one just sort of hits and extends for like five seconds while you're doing all the noodling with the high stuff. They do that like yeah. pretty much on every song here. And like that's kind <laughs> of like, yeah, that's like the signature of like the Midwest emo sound. And like, again, yeah. it works on me every fucking time. <laughs> Yeah, like, <laughs> drone with arpeggio and, like, intricate mathy riffs on top is, like, yeah, that is absolutely, like, structurally a huge part of it. It's interesting you say warm, like, at least compared to the post-rocky post-rock I know, in inverted comments, like, the range is wider, like, you get a band like Tortoise, who I fucking get mind-numbingly bored by, who are yeah. similarly cold and clinical. Um, I find American football is towards the, like, colder, more sharp, more brittle end, and more metallic end. Um because I'm more familiar with and probably just like more the the post-rock that gets more into, you know, like rangy, thick, um, squally, maybe shoegazy, mm-hmm. overdri- uh, overdriven, thick stuff. But yeah, like the, the, the guitar timbre is the notable thing. Yeah. The other thing is snares. Um, I feel like American football snares sound more like the like metal, hardcore, classic rock trajectory of like low tuned, um, like quite, um, springy whereas all the indie rock influenced stuff um and post-punk influenced stuff is a lot tighter and a lot shorter and a lot brighter and a lot um higher um and like those tend to be the things that for me demarcate not entirely like british versus american but like um metal and punk uh and rock influenced as like one vague side of things and post-punk and indie rock as the other side of things and like snare tuning is like one of the the few ways you can do that 
American football leans towards the one I'm less familiar with. Than, well, I say less familiar with. You hear all of them all over the place. But like the, it'll, it's the other side from most of the post-rock bands who are more into the either indie rock or just full off, like go completely the direction and go jazz. Um, mm-hmm. The drumming on this record is very jazzy, but the sound palette is still very much in that like uh, post-hardcore uh, emo fa- uh, side of things rather than the, the tighter, higher stuff. Yeah. Um, which I think is a good like way to segue into the question of like, how the fuck did we get here? Because, yeah. um, like, you know, it's been 14 years since the Rites of Spring record. Um, uh, allegedly, this is emo. So, allegedly, mm-hmm. there is, like, a historical lineage from something to this with uh, Rites of Spring at the very back. And, honestly, like, I was trying to figure this out. And I was talking to my brother, who's, like, more of a, a sort of historian of this stuff than, than I am. Because, like, he was actually, like, a a sort of, you know, um, hardcore, uh, like, radio DJ at one point. Mm. So, like, he he basically had to, like, have a lot of this historicity drilled into him. And what he pointed to as, like, kind of this big turning point where the one thing starts to prefigure the other was Slint. Okay. That makes perfect sense. Right? Entirely. (laughs) Yeah. So... Slint is a band that I've never really liked, and I don't think that I really figured it out until we were having, like, that discussion, my brother and I, because, like, Slint is tremendously influential on shit that I do really like, Um, mainly those being American Football and Insatia, um, which is, like, my favorite screamo band, and... It, it, it's kind of like this sense of, you know, which way Western man coming out of Slint, where you can either take the more mathy, noodly parts that get kind of, you know, more restrained and post-rocky, or you can take the more aggressive parts that kind of lean into the more, like, hardcore punk maximalism while still retaining some of the, like, mathiness that you've picked up from, like, the Minutemen. Um, and that brings you to Seisha. And because it's kind of midway in between two things that I really like, it kind of feels like, ugh. Well, depending on what I'm looking for, I'll just listen to Seisha or I'll listen to American Football. Yeah. Um, but it's it's very interesting that, like, you can get there um, and then to American Football within the span of a few years. And I know that I showed you, Alexis, the music that the uh, American Football guy... Uh, to the extent that there is one, um, I, which one is he? He's one of the Kinsella brothers. It's Mike is the main one. Um, so, <laughs> but yeah, I, I showed you what he was doing previously. Uh, Autumn, did you, yeah. did you listen to that song? And if not, would you want to listen to a quick two minute song? I did or? not. I would love to listen to it on air. Okay. Time for a uh, painted hot singles library app. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, again, um, this is the music that um, the Kinsella brothers, uh, who have all been kind of involved in making music uh, in various ways that branch out and and influence a lot of bands in the the Midwest indie rock scene. Um, but this was Tim's band that Mike was the drummer for. Uh, Mike would then go on to found American Football um, a couple years later. Uh, but yeah, okay. let me know when we're ready to start that recording. The track um, is Oh Messy Life by Captain Jazz. I remember what I was like 
trying to Google, like, what the fuck is emo? I kept seeing Captain Jazz, like, all over the place, but I never, like, actually, like, listened to any of their songs. And I was like, oh, I remember Hannah posted one in the chat. I need to listen to that. And then I never did, so. <laughs> I mean, this um, is what we got the live react for. Um, that's yeah, right. Hand it down. All right. Yeah, I'm ready whenever. Three, two, one, go. I like this more than American football. Five seconds in. So. Yeah. <laughs> this also, just has a little more like verve to it than anything American football. Oh yeah, American football toned down to energy a lot, and like it, th- this is not like fully representative of what Cabin Jazz sounds like. If you listen to like their most famous song, Little League. Um, for, well, first off, I came to Cabin Jazz pretty late, and the first time I listened to Little League, I was just like struck immediately by a sense of, oh, well, this is where Japan droids got their entire shit. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but, like, we just got to, like, this very sort of, like, you know, loud, anthemic chorus that is, like, very representative of a lot of, like, really good 90s rock. And I wouldn't even yeah. say, like, indie rock, yeah. right? Because this could be played on, like, an alternative station. Yeah, no question. Absolutely. This fits right alongside. So this is the thing I was thinking is, like, where does this hop off the like B-52s or Talking Heads, like more RE indie rock stuff? And I mean, some of it is vocal serving and like that's frankly about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. The the like combination of like obvious nerdery with like an interest in remaining like groovy and like energy forward. Like it, it feels like it's all there still. Um, and in some way, like that was already there in the uh, the Rice of Spring record, um, mm-hmm. that same like heritage from like artsy punk music. They're just like this feels like another side. Yeah, but yeah. also, yeah. I I mean I really really love this as well. It's just I'm not sure. Like I don't hear the dividing lines nearly as much in this track, and that might just be because it's slightly older, and therefore the dividing lines haven't emerged through like people like going off and then doing their thing. Yeah. But it's, it's really good. It's, it's a really, really good. fucking good track. And it's like, it's it's this amazing sort of just like Rosetta Stone moment of just understanding yeah. that like, oh, this is how I they call get. It a hinge. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is how they get to somewhere like American football. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can I can hear this on the same radio station that's playing like REM songs. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, um. Yeah, it's also very funny to me uh, to think about tim's sense of lyricism versus mike's uh because like the um cap and jazz lyrics are famously like very sort of obtuse and kind of like very playful in ways where it's like let me pull up the lyrics to uh little league cap and jazz lyrics um yeah the first uh uh lyrics on their only album are Hey, hey, coffee eyes, you got me coughing up my cookie heart, making promises to myself, promises like seeds of everything I could be. Hey, hey, ringwald haze, you're using bruises to lose Lee in a haste to lose me. And that is a million miles away from how American football writes lyrics. Yes. (laughs) Which is, I want to be clear, as someone who really loves this record, American football is a great example of how there's a huge difference between good lyrics and lyrics that are what you need in a specific moment. 
because I have been in moments where I'm really sad, I'm really emo, and I want to just warble out in my horrible off-key uh-huh. voice, not to be overly dramatic. <laughs> But, like, let's face it. These are fucking awful lyrics. <laughs> they suck. Yeah. You're being really generous. They fucking suck. <laughs> I think they're, like, awful lyrics. But I do think, like, the way that he sings them, like, sells it in, in a good way. Um, yeah. Just in the sense that, like, if it if he was singing any differently, I would be really focused on how the lyrics suck. But I think he's, like... <laughs> It feels like he's coming by it honestly when he sings, like, never meant. Yeah. It's, like, there's so many embarrassing lines on this. What was, what's, there was one that really, like, made me laugh this morning. Um, It was, um, uh, uh, uh. Shaking your hand, like kiss on the cheek, yeah. <laughs> possibly both or whatever. Possibly all three, yeah. That's possibly so fucking three. cool. <laughs> um And like I I think the like his phrasing and his vocal delivery like actually makes that line work for me, but when I just like listen <laughs> was listening yeah. to it today, it really fucking cracked me up. I, like possibly all three. I it's think, just fucking funny. I think my yeah. version of that is on the song I'll see you when we're not when we're both not so emotional. By the way, uh, very quick detour, we again talk about like the one trick that this band does. Um like every song on this record, the title is just the last line. Yeah. And <laughs> that's like you smug motherfuckers. <laughs> anyway, um the chorus uh, to this song, which I love this song. I, I think that, like, there's such a, a richness to the guitar work in the hook. It's something that, like, I was a huge fan of Phoenix when I was in, uh, I guess that would have been, like, early college. Um, like, I played the Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix record, like, a million times. Mm-hmm. And, again, it's like, oh, th- they just owe their entire shit. And that whole, like, sense of, like, hyper-jangly, like, European um, kind of, like, dancey uh, uh, rock um, including like stuff like uh, DeLorean, who I was also really into. They owe so much like specifically this chorus. It's extremely beautiful. I love listening to it. I'm going to read out now the lyrics, which are some of the most embarrassingly like kind of dry and stupid shit I've ever heard. Quote, we're two human beings individually with inherent interest in each other and how we relate. End quote. I'm just shaking my head. <laughs> it sucks so bad. <laughs> It's like so fucking bad. <sighs> okay, can I can I like try and rescue the lyrical treatment slightly? Yeah, go for it. Sure. Having said that, I think they fucking suck, and I don't even want to be as generous as you two finding like humor in them. <laughs> <laughs> um, the first line of "Never Men." Let's just forget everything we said and everything we did. It's a it's an eh nothing lyric. It comes in exactly when in the track. It's a wait. About a minute yeah. in. Yeah. The thing it does is it comes in on the first um, change of drum uh, of uh, drum sequence where the ride gets introduced. Like, the thing you do with a ride is a ride is an upper. Like, you add in a ride cymbal when you're changing from, like, you know, you, you're playing your part on the hi-hat. You move to the ride where it gets, like, wider and more expansive and more relaxed and maybe a bit more, like, filled out. It feels like it's in the middle of a thing. Like the lyrics aren't mm-hmm. to me a centerpiece that organizes the tracks around them. 
Um, the tracks feel like they're organized in a way that are primarily instrumental and then the lyrics are inserted where space makes sense for them to go. And like that is the case in point where like every time I return to this record, I kept re-reminding myself just how much this sounds structurally like a post-rock record. Like structurally, mm-hmm. this does not feel like it's um, inheriting anything from like punk formats or like pop formats. Um, and just like the, the hint there for me, just like the, the start of the first verse of this whole entire album on the statement track is interstitial to the rest of the actual like structure of the track um, rather than like the thing it's organized around. In which case, it doesn't matter quite as much. Like, it's mixed really fucking low. It's mixed really fucking dry. It recedes into the background yeah. a lot. It's fine for it to be a nothing set of lyrics because sometimes when they matter, they matter. But, like, most of the time, they fit into a tapestry where you're concentrating on other stuff or at least it's organized around other stuff and your attention is organized around other stuff. Yeah. Um, I think that's all very fair. Um, and I will say something as far as, like, I think why you're having such a, like difficulty um or just like you know like why you don't vibe with these these lyrics like at all even in this sense of like yeah they suck but like sometimes you need lyrics that suck in this specific way is that like yeah yeah when when i'm really going through it emotionally i will just wail out you know let's just pretend over and over again uh uh-huh. when you are going through it emotionally you will write a 15 page manifesto called against <laughs> being <laughs> got him <laughs> I, I can't believe you murdered alexis on this podcast <laughs> i say this with incredible love and affection <laughs> yeah, do you want to talk about the metric modulation in the track honestly appreciate being murdered in the most enjoyable ways it's, it's so positive um that is you know you, you, you kind of got me there um, please feel free to cut that out if you need to nah nah it's staying it's too good autumn's laugh was too funny um ah <laughs> uh, my favorite track on this record is honestly and it is because of the metric modulation this is one of the coolest structured pieces of music i have heard in a long time Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, I don't. I don't know what metric modulation is, but I like um, honestly was the song that like jumped out on me, uh, jumped out to me on the record because like there's a lot of stuff on the record that, where the guitar parts feel kind of complicated for complicated sake. Uh, whereas like this felt like it was complicated in a way that was like ah, the song is more interesting because it's so fucking fiddly. <laughs> yeah. So the the thing it's doing, the first thing is just like it starts off straight. It starts off with. Uh, like a straightforward rock beat one and two three and four and then it just at some point about a minute in uh switches to like a th- like one two three two two three one two three two two three and then the thing it does is as it surely slips the guitar parts and how they interlock and slowly shifts the drum pattern um it shifts from uh one two and three one two and three one two and three two one and two and one and two and one and two and so it's a two against three thing um where the middle of the one two three pattern like that middle thing where i was putting the and suddenly becomes the strong beat because that's what sounds like what used to be the up 
pick on the uh, up hit on the guitar suddenly becomes a downbeat. Um, and it's just a thing that slowly shifts as the tapestry of the track changes. And the thing that I immediately noticed myself doing is like, I am a, I am someone who moves when I, listen, when I listen to music. And I immediately went from headbang through the straight rock section at the beginning of the track to this like long push. One, two, three, one, two, three. See the first part of the, the, like, the breakdown. And then it introduces like a second thing to start headbanging to midway through this push. Uh, midway through that, sorry, that extended like long middle eight. Um, just like autumn's entirely right it's a, one of the i'm not gonna say only because i think like honestly this is one of the few records that really sells me on massiness as a way of like making tracks emotionally impactful like i think the awkwardness and the lopsidedness and the like expansion of the phrase structures are really crucial to like the emotional like tapestry of the record as a whole but this is the one where it's like so clearly like structurally integral to the way you feel the music over the whole track and it's a six minute track so it needs that variation Mm -hmm. But it fucking does move from like straight and aggressive to like long and lugubrious and like uh, expansive to like a different kind of pressure and a different kind of forward movement. Yeah, like if there's one track that it will stick with me from this record, it's gonna be honestly. Oh yeah. Um, I don't think I have that much more to say about this sucker. Autumn, yeah. you got no, I, I, I ended up coming around on it, but um. I don't have a ton to say about it yeah. um, beyond what we've already said. All right. So. If, if we are kind of like transitioning over, then I have a nice little segue for us. Yeah. Which fire. is, um, I want to think about like the way that these three albums specifically think about the idea of memory. Because if we think about the most iconic songs on the Rights of Spring record, the American football record, Rights of Spring one starts with the phrase, I, I believed memory might mirror no reflections on me. I, I believed that in forgetting I might set myself free. And then, of course, the American football's uh, most famous lyric is all about, like, you know, uh, let's just pretend, let's just forget, right? Um, I just think it's best because you can't miss what you forget, so let's just pretend everything and anything between you and me was never meant. These are both about, like, engaging with memory as this kind of, like, conceptual space and, like, what it does to you. Um but like holding it at a sort of remove in the sense of like, you're talking here about memory as a concept um, and, and you're talking about it in terms of what effects it might have on you, but in very sort of, again, abstracted ways. When we think about Suburbia, I've given you all and now I'm nothing by The Wonder Years, that is a record that is about memory in terms of very, very specific moments and the very specific emotional impact that those moments have left on you. So there's mm -hmm. my little, there's my little transition. Summer came on way too strong and the radio played all new songs. So I smiled and hum along, hum along.
Yeah, no, we, we were talking about this and my immediate response was, it's so rare for me. It feels like the singer wandered out of like a folk band yeah. and started shouting oh, over Oh, it's, it's super Mountain Goats, the whole thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, he fucking references Mountain Goats <sighs> as one of those specific memories, right? Like the, <laughs> yeah. Um, oh my God. He first name checks him as well. <laughs> I, I love how he's constantly, like, name-checking specific shows that he went to and was like, oh, yeah, and when they started playing this song, that's when I really had, like, my emotional breakdown of the night. <laughs> exactly. But, and, yeah, like, the the idea being there that, like, I was not prepared for a record that sounds like this to be so fucking concrete, like, so mm-hmm. fucking in a time and place talking about specific things. Because, you know, uh, I was fully expecting the... Somewhere between the like rangy poeticism of Rites of Spring or the like very shallow poetry. I don't <laughs> want to be continually too mean. No, say but, it. Like, say it. It is shallow poetry. Straightforwardly poetry. shallow poeticism of yeah. American football. Like, I thought that was the range we were dealing with. I thought that like that's where song lyrics like in this space lived. And this is just not that at all. And it's cool for it. It's really fucking good for it. Yeah. 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 Um, so. <clears throat> I chose this record because, um, like, uh, like I mentioned before, like pop punk, not a genre that I was super into during its heyday, uh, at least on us radio, but like was just like fucking everywhere. Um, when I was growing up and, um, I, I chose this in part because like, you know, even before we started this, this, um, episode i was like i feel unclear on the difference between what emo is and like what pop punk is and so i was like i was thinking about choosing like an emo or pop punk record from the like radio heyday but then i i ended up on this because it comes out in 2011 like after like i think fallout boy is currently broken up when this record comes out um i i don't know when um mcr was like active in comparison to the wonder years but i don't think they were like doing much in 2011 um i think yeah that might like, have been like their is, last gas with like the killjoys era um yeah you might be right there um and so i was like i always find this record really interesting because um i think it is a lot more mature than a lot of the um at least the fallout boy that i was listening to um uh, i think like mcr is a much more mature band than fallout boy is but yeah i'm not as into mcr as i was fallout boy and um a couple other things um and so i really like this and i wanted to sort of like pick at like how pop punk and emo sort of became synonymous because radio flattens everything especially especially since the clear channel buyout yeah for sure <laughs> um and yeah i just really like this um i uh I joked on Twitter earlier this week that I think it's like an emo record with a like Tumblr understanding of mental health stuff. But I think I think I mean that complimentary. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because I okay, a a couple things here. Right. Because like very quickly, that fallout boy comparison. I absolutely do think that this is a lot more mature. And I think that like a big part of the difference between that is that like early fallout boy especially is all about like mythologizing your incredibly petty bullshit like uh-huh. you know you 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 don't say things like this ain't a scene it's a goddamn arms race without having like 
an incredibly high self-regard for the fact that like you're annoyed by this other band you know um whereas this (laughs) is very much a record that is about like looking at yourself with like cold clarity and like kind of stripping away a lot of these like you know abstractions and uh uh lionizations and myth making that might like kind of help you figure out some uh some some way to like cope with that um what's the fuck what's the track where the chorus goes like uh, i'm not a self-help book i'm just a fucked up kid uh, uh is that the first track no it's no, not no, but no, it's no, like no, no. one it's, of the it's, earlier it's ones. early it's like the fourth track or something like that yeah uh let's find it let's find it um but that's um, the one that i uh, man. final track of local man uh, final, final bit of local man ruins everything Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that's one that just really hit me when I was listening to this as far as, like, it, it feels like it's, you know, a, for one, like, a very conscious response to, like, trying to be positive in their earlier music, but also just a sense of, like, there's so little that I can hold on to that, like, mythologizes what I'm going on, that what is going on in my life. And in fact, like, there's even kind of some anti-mythology going on uh, effectively with, like, making things seem, like, less you know high stakes than they are and like the uh, mm-hmm. the example that I'm thinking about that is in the first interlude which I, I fucking love the interludes on this record yeah. by the way the ones that make Super up the, the album title uh, but the first one something that Alexis brought up is that like the, the line here is the most famous person to come out of here is the guy that played Leatherface and all those Chainsaw Massacres, which is a lie and something that like Soupy will very happily admit to when like talking about it in interviews. Be like, oh yeah, John Oates went to our school, but like, I just felt like it would be better for the song. And like, that's such a cool lie to, to write in this. It's so good. Um, also, just like he looked at his, the, the quote is here. I thought it was cool to bring up Andrew uh, uh, Brynjowski. I uh, don't know who, the, who this person is, really. Uh, yeah. But because, well, look at his Wikipedia profile image. And I went back to the 2011 Wikipedia profile image. And it's pretty fucking powerful, I have to say. Yeah, he's a cool guy. Um, he knows where the party he's a cool is. Cool um, I dropped it back in the chat. Yeah. Um, the other thing look, that I wanted, look at that man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the other thing that I wanted to bring up is that distinction between like where does pop punk end and emo begin, and the answer is like fucking nowhere. Like it's it's bullshit. Yeah. It doesn't mean yeah. anything. Like if you think about like some of the most iconic like pop punk bands, they're talking about very emotional stuff all the time. Like, like I think about Blink One Eighty Two, right? Who is like, uh, as I understand it, a huge influence on the Wonder Years, and like. You yeah, know, there's so much. There's enough technical drumming on this record that like I I didn't have to like look up and figure out that like yep they cite Blink as a as an influence, but like yeah you know Blink One Eighty Two people wouldn't really call them emo, and you know I I think that that's that's a fair characterization. Um, but like they are constantly talking about emotional stuff, like you know Adam's song "Stay Together for the Kids." Like they have these like very like you know sad and introspective breakup songs, right? Um, Aliens exist is about like you know being from a broken home and and like kind of turning to to things as again like forms of myth making to, to just cope with the fact that your life sucks and you're drifting apart from your friends. There's like so much in those lineages that like even if it's not explicitly emo. These are bands that are talking about their emotions to an insane degree. And especially, like, mm-hmm. 
that whole skate punk scene that also feels like very important on the sound of what ended up with the Wonder Years here. These are like <clears throat> skate punks are constantly talking about how like, oh yeah, we need these creative expressional outlets to not kill ourselves, you know? And it's mm-hmm. it's it's the sort of thing where like the, the distinction between what kind of emotions are you expressing that makes you specifically emo pop and not just pop punk feels absurdly arbitrary to the extent where it's just like fuck it this is emo yeah we can think of it as such if we want to yeah i um like <clears throat> so i don't i didn't hear this record until a couple years after it came out maybe like 2019 ish um and um it it Despite despite that, it feels like incredibly nostalgic to me because like um, there are like bands that I got into that I think are like similar, but um, are so much more cringe to me now than like (laughs) this is because I think like even this this record has cringe on it to be clear <laughs> like, i'm not saying this is cringe the song about christianity only that like <laughs> can, can i can i drop in um hey jess yeah. i watched you wake up and get dressed you left the room receded like my hairline <laughs> that rules i i'm sorry but that fucking rules it rules i've been muttering on my breath constantly for the last week but yeah you know you're it, cringe impactful cringe but it's still cringe yeah, that, but like, please go. Ahead. You go. Uh, I was just gonna ask uh, very quickly. What were you listening to that was more cringe than this? Because now I'm dying to know. God. The Gaslight Anthem. Like Fuck, I yeah. was obsessed with the Gaslight Anthem as a teenager. Um, which is like kind of a punk band, kind of a pop punk band, kind of like. I don't know. Whatever. I will probably end up bringing a Gaslight Anthem record here someday just so that we can, like, you know, fully, like, plunge the depths of my teenage soul because the Gaslight Anthem is a band that writes very similar songs to this, but every single one is about how, man, women are so mean to me. I'm a nice guy, and I have it really hard. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And... It, it it's it was very nice finding this album like years later and it like scratches the same like musical itch in my brain but doesn't make me feel like this is kind of low key misogynist <laughs> in the way that like so much pop punk and emo is low key misogynist or high key misogynist depending yeah yeah <laughs> um i i did go back and listen to um Oh, what did I listen to? Let me pull it up real quick. Because uh, Get Hurt, the like fourth or fifth Gaslight Anthem album, came out the year I graduated high school. I listened to that so many fucking times. Um, like, yeah, American Slang came out my freshman year. Handwritten came out my uh, sophomore or junior. And then Get Hurt comes out my senior year. So that is just like a band that I was up fucking obsessed with and is just intolerable now. <laughs> That, so. that, that that might win out, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the most obnoxious of these types of bands that again, it, it, it kind of feels similar to this because it's there's there's a kind of a lot of like upbeat technicality to the way that they write songs and a lot of like 
mountain goats influenced folk stuff in the way that they uh, write lyrics. But like, I've been huge into the front bottoms at various points in my life. And that is mm. also an incredibly cringe band to, to like. In I thought way. you were going to say hot water music when you talked about like the folky influence, because hot water music is another one that is like incredibly cringe that I was very into. Mm-hmm. Bomb the music industry. That That's unbelievably cringe. Um, and it, it, it feels like a piece <laughs> of this whole lineage, but yeah. Um, this is a really good album though, is the thing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah. And it's like I genuinely, I, I try my best to not be like you know the the type of Christian who like rolls my eyes at at Reddit atheist stuff because it's like okay, well, to what extent does that actually matter? Like, who mm-hmm. who cares? Like, let people be cringe. But like, I have to skip. I won't say the Lord's Prayer when I listen to this record because like, <laughs> I, I, it's it's really like it gets better as it goes on, but like the the opening lyrics are like the fact that they're being said really slow and drawn out makes it so much worse um Mm -hmm. because it's like uh while women with gold crosses push kids into half-formed beliefs and if lot was righteous i think i'd rather not be we lead on fences (sighs) built from outdated morality and like as slow and excruciating as it was for me to read that out, it is about twice as slow and excruciating on that, on the actual yeah. song. And yet yeah. it has this moment that I skip every time. It has this moment that like really makes me just feel like, you know, like, Ugh. but the rest of the record is so fucking good. And so fucking like <laughs> sharply observed about a lot of this sense of like nostalgia and returning home and like trying to, wrap your head around like the shape of your life and like understand your place in it that like i i love this record so much like come came out swinging is such an amazing album opener yeah i was gonna say came out swinging is oh my god it's so good. good i have to say i spent a whole year in airports and the floor feels like home whoa it's a bit of a non sequitur in my head like that's not a whoa line to me personally but everything Uh, everything about it is just glorious um the beauty of pop punk is that you can put a whoa uh, uh, anywhere (laughs) (laughs) anyone can get a whoa uh, uh, if if you're coheed i mean mean, like yeah 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 i was gonna say if you're coheed in cambria you can put whoa whoa woes on like songs about like committing space murders and and everybody (laughs) will just go with it yeah, I mean, there's a difference though, between like space murders where it's not like about, you know, uh, it w- that's like daring do and excitement and drama. Whereas mm-hmm. this is like, I am exhausted and emotionally wrung out and I've lost my, um, I've, I've lost my, um, my girlfriend and I don't feel like there is any place in this fucking planet that is actually welcoming and homely to me. Whoa! <laughs> yeah, that's... It's a bit of a non sequitur. <laughs> no, it, it rules. It's, it's... It's so good. But like, um, I... Yeah. As I was saying with the whole, like, it's so concrete. Like, that, that from the first line, um, like, moved all my slamming into shit and realizing that shit is not like emotional baggage. It's literally talking about, like, I got in a van, put my boxes in it, put it, uh, like, took that, uh, took that car to my, like, shitty parents' house where my shitty parents are that I begrudgingly have to move back in. And put it in, yeah. Everything about that is just like, 
ah, right, we've set the emotional tone for this whole record and it's so much more interesting yeah. <laughs> for, uh, for being that direct about it. Um, um. I have to say, for all you want to deride me for my slightly verbose and ridiculous and over-theoretical tendencies um, in, other, in other places. For all that I love and appreciate you for those tendencies. Many things. <laughs> Continue. Um, I would absolutely be the fucking arsehole who would write uh, a segment of a song with lines like, I came out, what? Not the first bit. I came out swinging from a South Philly basement, kicked in stale beer and sweat on the half-lit fluorescence. This bit. This bit, because it fucking kicks me in the gut every single mm-hmm. time. Yeah. And I spent the winter writing songs about getting better. And if I'm being honest, I'm getting there. Um, that line is so fucking gorgeous. I love it. <laughs> Incredible. I love it. And then all it needs to do is just repeat it, but up an octave and with the guitars in. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So good. <laughs> so fucking good. I love this track so much. So, so much. Yeah, I, I I think that again there is that that touchstone that I want to keep coming back to is the sense of like maturity because like this yeah. is something that comes in at the very end of like emo and pop punk as like a genre and there's still bands that are like carrying a torch right now like Pup is really big at this point and you know I'm I'm really happy for them but like this is something that is very consciously looking back on a scene and a genre and a sound that has had its heyday. And you can now Mm -hmm. reflect on what all of those ideas mean and your place within them. And I think another really good uh, uh, song that kind of like sums this up is something that like on my first listen that I was annoyed by is this sense of like, oh, shut the fuck up. You're making it sound like you came from this like, you know, awful little town in the middle of nowhere. But like you came from (laughs) Philadelphia, you you dumb asshole. (laughs) But it's like the, the, the penultimate song, Hoodie Weather is all about this idea that like, oh, well, this is just a universal feeling. Everyone feels like where they come from specifically is like this this awful dead end place and they've they've got to get out and like go anywhere else. And like, I fucking felt that way about like the neighborhood in Chicago that I was born in, you know? Yeah. And like, mm-hmm. I, I can, like the, the idea of like a, a main thoroughfare that has like most of its businesses closed down or boarded up is something that like I really, can relate to um but again that's from fucking chicago like i could just move to a different neighborhood if i wanted to stay in chicago you could move to a different neighborhood in philly but it is this like kind of self reflection on the idea of like well this is kind of universal feeling and that doesn't make it stupid and it doesn't make it wrong but it makes it something that like everyone who's listening to this record can feel some sense of like yeah i do want to be anywhere but here Um, yeah, I, um, and I think, I think this, um, album, like, strikes so perfectly, like, a feeling that I have a lot of, like, oh, I grew up in this town, and I needed to get out, I hate it here, um, and then then also, as soon as I left, I'm like, oh, right, I have all these memories about this place, this place is, like, very important to me, um, and like both things are true that I miss it and I needed to get out of there. Um, and I can like, you know, 
take Nora to my hometown and be like, okay, well, this is, you know, this used to be a really cool place, but now it's boarded up. And, um, oh, over here is where we would, like, you know, smoke weed behind the bushes. <laughs> Shit like that. Yeah. I think this, um, I think this album, like, hits that really well. Yeah. I, I was thinking about how, like, um, the, uh, some something that like really sticks with me is, uh, uh, and I'm sorry to to bring them up, uh, but when I listened to Chapa Trap House a lot, there was a moment <laughs> where they were doing their like first live tour of Chicago, because uh, they're all like New York guys at this point, and one of their members, mm -hmm. uh, Felix, is from Chicago. And they were all, like, annoyed at him on the episode for, like, we were all asking you, like, what are some cool places we can hang out, like, bars we could go to, you know, restaurants, like, venues, what can we do? And Felix was just saying, oh, that's not the real Chicago. The real Chicago is being in your, like, like kind of skeevily older friends' uh, unfinished basement and, like, watching DVDs <laughs> of, like, how high and cool runnings and, like, playing SSX Tricky and, like, you know, just drinking like water that has like incredible amounts of room dust in it um it's just wow. like <laughs> it's like i i listened to that and i was just like yes 100 percent, 100 percent. that is the truth it is also the third biggest city in the country and like a bustling <laughs> hub of like a lot of you know cultural stuff yeah. um but like yeah. yeah everybody has a sense of their hometown as that as like you know if if I'm going back to Chicago, then, like, yeah, I do want to, like, you know, take whoever I'm there with to see, like, the cool touristy stuff. But I also just want to, like, walk around my old neighborhood and point at things that are boarded up and say, this used to be cool. And I'm lying. And that's the point. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I was thinking on this exact trajectory for myself a little while ago, both inspired by the combination of, like, well, the UK didn't have this. What did we have instead? Mm -hmm. And there's a difference because the UK is large and varied, but of its, uh, like, say, 60, 65 million people, as it was in the in the year 2010 or whatever, um, about 15 million of them lived in Greater London or do live in Greater London. Um, mm -hmm. The UK is structured around London as a city and structured around, like, urban to, like, not even suburban, like, semi-urban living in a way that I don't think most bits of the US are. It's a small, dense country. It's just different. Like life is different because geographically it's structured differently. Mm -hmm. It's dumb, it's silly, but the record I kept thinking about was Burial, uh, the first Burial record. And the reason for that was like, what is your emotional response to like suburban malaise? Um, finding one that actually makes sense is not like an identical transportable one. And like part of it is like, yeah, we also had indie rock. We had a different kind of indie rock and it suited like our scenes and our clubs and our musical history. But like there was a very distinctly British response to like urban malaise um, and like how it feels to live in a city that feels like it's slowly rotting from the inside out. And it sounds like a different kind of emotional response. It doesn't sound exuberant or... <laughs> it doesn't sound exuberant or angry or thrashy it's defeated um and like you could go off on all the tangents about like the, the like the emotional uh, politics and like like with just straight economic politics like encoded in a, in a record like the the burial records um but like it feels like it needed a different response because it's a different place mm. but it's also very fun to be a kind of tourist for other people who have like different kinds of suburbs and different kinds of lives um, but that is very much how I feel when, when I listen to a record like this, because I don't have 
a city that has done the same things as South or indeed Northwest Philly, where he's from, like mm-hmm. they're, they're different suburbs. Like I don't have like a quarter of my neighborhood bulldozed to make, uh, make way for both the Sixers and the Eagles and the, uh, what's the <laughs> Phillies N- N- NHL team. Uh, Flyers? Flyers. Yeah. That's the one to make, to make way for three massive sports stadiums and a casino and like a square. What like, uh, two square miles of um parking garages and what well, stuff is double parking like yeah. that's not the city I live in it's not the not the way my life was structured it's not the sense of malaise mm-hmm. that was generated mine was generated by you know the distinctly British like slow cancellation of good futures and like like the the the, the, the like slow financialization of every single industry and yeah. like you know the, it's a different kind of more distinctly urban less suburban um like there's a there's a race thing hiding in here like i needed to look up what the racial composition of south philly was like it's like got a massive amount of the student population living there i also like find out it's got a massive italian and irish american population living there like i get what the feeling is and i get like trying to extract what the like social environment and i I have to be a voyeuristic tourist like this to try and figure out like what the emotional space is that he's working from and how it's transforming and like London's just got a very different one, like slightly more racially mixed, I think, like taking musical references from like black and electronic, mu- well, like black musical forms and electronic music in mm-hmm. particular. And yeah, like doing its own thing with a different set of social problems. But like that was the, the like bizarre parallelism I like constructed in my head. If anyone thinks that it's ridiculous for me to have brought up uh, the first burial record in the context of the Wonder Years of Suburbia, um, feel free to fucking at me, but I'm standing by this one. I'm going to stand by it too, because I, I think that like thinking about it in that sense just kind of unlocks something for me, because um, when we talk about like these neighborhood histories and whatnot, the one that informs where I come from is is kind of like a hybrid model, right? In that it was, it's urban, it is, um, you know, based on like a few uh, like specific ethnic immigrant groups, but like it was, what happened to the neighborhood where I grew up is that like there were plans to gentrify it and they built a bunch of like, you know, more posh developments and they were starting to build like, you know, more posh businesses that could like support those developments and make this a more attractive place to live for like yuppie types. Um, And then just the yuppies never came and like shit just collapsed. (laughs) And so now there's like a lot of empty houses over in the development off like the main road and a lot of businesses that are just boarded up because, you know, the the thing that was supposed to save this this place or, like, kind of, you know, save, of course, in the biggest square quotes possible just never happened. Um, yeah. And it, it feels like that's a story that can relate to to both of these these kinds of poles. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it's weird. Like, London has bits that sound like that exactly. Like, I think about Battersea as an area, like, got the famous power station that's been continually redeveloped and supposedly with luxury flats in it, like a whole tube line extension to go to the, some of the most overpriced and like underutilized flats in the whole country, like occupancy rates below 40% because like they were bought as investments and then, you know, COVID happened and then suddenly they're not good investments anymore. Or areas like Shoreditch and Mile End where like those were sort of like heavily residential dense neighborhoods on the outskirts of the city. And then slowly the city expanded and expanded and expanded until like, they just got swallowed and like you, you turned into like combinations of yuppie bars and like facsimiles of what they were before to sell to people working in the city. 
it's like the the story of gentrification happens in different ways in different places and london being just such a sprawling but distinctly urban like city for such a vast area like really colors how you experience it but yeah this is a this it feels entirely in keeping with the sorts of things that i was thinking about mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah um <laughs> this record really rules uh, we haven't talked much about how it sounds <laughs> And I wanted to, the, 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 the thing when I was thinking back on it was like, oh yeah, I don't have much to say because it sounds in inverted commas. And I said this last episode, it sounds like sometimes when you say a record is perfect, that sounds pejorative um, because like that means there is no grit or no remarkable surprise in it. But this is one of those records that just like, it's not about like the ostentation of the production and the, the or doing something remarkable and weird and strange with it. Pretty much everything in this sounds perfect, and it's probably better off for it. But also, yeah, I'm, not a sort cult- of... I'm not a cultured post-punk listener, so that might be just be yeah. I think it very much just like is the genre of pop punk. Yes. It is just like this sort of like uh, I think it is just like a distillation of like a lot of the the best stuff of pop punk. Um, uh, I think it. I think it has helped by coming out in 2011 and not 2001, you know, yeah. um, because I think they like just listened to a lot of the uh, the the popular records. Um, and we're just like, we're going to take that bit. and We're going to take this bit. And we're going to take this bit and we're going to leave out that part. And, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, <clears throat> I, I absolutely agree. Um, I think you you guys are both there for when I was on my first listen of this, and I was just like vomiting out band after band. That this felt like it's like yeah. ooh, this feels like it's an interesting continuation of this idea and this idea. The ones that really stand out to me, um, obviously, I mentioned Blink One Eighty Two in the past. Um, I think mm-hmm. that Blink One Eighty Two is tremendously underrated as like actual lyricists and as as people who can write about really like heartbreaking stuff with like the detail of specific lives. Um, it makes me think of the Ataris a lot, uh, early Ataris, um, like before they're like one moment in the mainstream sun with the Don Henley cover. Um, and I do think that there are a couple moments here that kind of like get a bit of that like 80s influenced uh, skate punk feel to it. But having re-listened to the, my favorite Ataris record as a preparation for discussing this, this is actually a lot better than that one. So <laughs> going to put that in the bin for now. Um, there's also a lot here of Motion City Soundtrack's first record, which is a record that over the years I have felt alternately very pissed off at and also that I really love. Um, and it's this sort of like pop punk, but in a way that is kind of hyper literate and self-aware and self-aware of like the limitations of a genre that you're going into that uses a lot of these like very sort of like fun little lyrical phrases um like the 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 touchdown with motion city soundtrack is always the idea that like um their biggest music video it's like the cliches of like a music video about like, you know, a a dissolving relationship, right? Where it's like, oh, we're sitting on a couch, but like we're in a time lapse and we're not looking at each other. And it's, you know, like that type of like cliche shit, right? But the girl is portrayed by like a big, like um, bunny mascot costume. And then of course, uh, what is on the cover of this Wonder Years record? Oh. It's a bird mascot costume. 
Yeah. On a suburban yeah. street. So like that that felt like it's a a a powerful touchstone as far as like being very conscious and responsive to the mm. place that you have within this this like genre. Um and yeah, I really like where it's all ended up. Um it feels like it's taken a lot of the coolest parts of uh like Motion City soundtrack and Atari's for me. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I mean, it's just a, not a genre I know, <laughs> which it feels, again, it was even easier to avoid because I don't know whether you'd have said pop punk ever had, like, big crossover breakouts in the same way that emo did. Emo feels like it had its occasional moments, and maybe maybe I'm just not being generous enough, but yeah. This um, is, uh... I mean, again, it really depends on where you define, like, the, the genres. Like, pop punk oh, was yeah. fucking huge at the time. It's like, Sum 41, yeah. Blink-182, Green Day... I, I simply need to just wind it back a couple of years before I was like actively thinking about like what was on MTV. Like now, nah, just like okay, yeah. four years, five years prior. The, the emo boom, the pop emo boom came a few years later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Sick. That might be a podcast. I think that might be a podcast. I think we did a good podcast. I think we did I do think a so. good podcast. Right. Um, before we get out of here. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Do you have a pick for next episode? Um, I had two thoughts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had three thoughts, but one of them I'm feeling low on. So the one I'm feeling low on was just, oh, there's a new snail mail record I haven't listened to. Uh-huh. We could do that. And similarly, I think there's like, there's a new Vince record I haven't listened to. We could do that. I don't, I don't know that I feel too strongly about either of those. Um, the, the. The ones I'm going to actually float are, uh, we could do hotels, because I think it would be fun to do hotels. Interesting. Um, and um, I uh, just keep seeing um, people talk about this uh, like new like kind of hardcore like punk record, um, Diaspora Problems by Soul Glow. Haven't listened to it yet, but um, the album art has been really grabbing me, and I was probably going to check it out this week anyway. So I was like, might be fun to just do that. Might be fun to just like, I don't know what this is. I'm gonna bring it to the show and we'll figure it out. Uh, are you ready to commit to one of those, or do you want? Um, should I tell you what the other two albums that we're doing are? And tell me what the other two are. So, uh, for next episodes, uh, dear Buchanan is bringing uh, Cavalcade by Black Midi, and I am bringing Sinner Get Ready by Lingua Ignota. I don't know what either of those are. Exciting. So. <laughs> Very exciting. Um, we, um, I, I, I remember all the way at the start of the year before we needed a little like, oh, wait, hang on. We, we can't record for a couple of weeks. I had this record in mind to bring this Lingua Ignata record in mind. Like, I want Autumn to listen to this and figure out what I think. Um, I'm excited for you to get to listen. Um, um, I'm... Uh, I'm gonna say let's do um, diaspora problems, but diaspora problems by Soul Glow. Like I say, literally don't know anything. I just saw it around a couple times this week, and I was planning on checking it out anyway. So might as well do it for the podcast. All right, let's go. Uh, does that mean we got three guitar records again? Oh, if we've got three guitar records, I'm picking hotels. No, that was that was <laughs> no. a, that was a thing of excitement, not of condemnation. No, disappointment. we'll do we'll do Soul Glow, but I'm not picking a guitar record next time. No, nah, that's fine. I won't be either. But you know, 
<laughs> we, we, I, um, we gotta get gotta get our little no guitars matter too um in desperation i mean like i have been li- my main listening lately has been country music which is like guitar music without feeling like guitar music because yeah, yeah. when we say guitar music we what we really mean is rock mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um guitar music is so. expansive Guitar music is expansive and also fucking dead. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. We'll, we'll get back onto the things that the cool kids are listening to very soon, I promise. Um, it sounds like that is going to do it for us, though. Um, thank you very much, Hannah, for joining us for this. I feel thoroughly educated and had a pretty excellent time figuring out what the fuck emo was without ever having to listen to Fallout Boy or My Chemical Romance, which is frankly an achievement. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and if you want to sum up what emo is it is everything that we have discussed uh, at all tangentially in this two hour podcast um, and it is also nothing plus Jimmy eats world yeah <laughs> Jimmy Jimmy eating the world said trans rights we did it yeah hell right. uh, where can we find you on the internet Anna? you can find me at hannayolo on twitter.com which is spelled h-a-n-n-a-h y-o-l-e-a-u um, I actually finished a run of my podcast that I was doing with Olivia, uh, but you can find the archive of that at, um, it's called, uh, it's not called Journal Updated. What was it called? Do Not Steal. <laughs> it's called Do Not Steal, an original character podcast. Uh, we recorded 12 episodes of it. I'm really proud of it as a run. It was super, super fun. I guess 13 if you count the recap. Um, yeah. but yeah, take a listen to that. It's a uh, really fun stuff for like, uh, if you want to think about creative writing, game design, or any mix of the two. Yeah, fucking incredible podcast. Still fucking Thank think you. about your your burial is also Sophie. <laughs> this, like, absolutely fucking dysfunctional partner. Yeah, that is yeah. a character. A, he's a character in the British sense of, oh, he's a bit of a character, any. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that sense of character. Um, Autumn, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at autumnal underscore coffee. You can find all the podcasts that we do by going to exportodd.io. That takes you to the Patreon page where I have links to all the free feeds, or you can just give us a dollar a month and you can get this podcast early. You can get uh, Gotham City Limits early, where um, this week we talked about The Batman um, 2022. Uh, You can get all sorts of things, or for $5 a month, you can get Pop Town Funk, a podcast where my wife and I roll random Funko Pops, and then have to talk about the movies or video games or whatever. Uh, I'm wife. <laughs> that's why. Did I, I heard Rogue Nora. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Rogue Nora, the sequel to Rogue One, which is far better. <laughs> um, the army is no match for Nora. <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Regression with three S's. Um K-pop podcast is coming back imminently. It's going to happen. We're just literally doing liner notes and then we'll be be uploading. So subscribe to Stan Ontology um, or go to exportords.io forward slash K-pop, no dashes, to get that feed. Um, very excited for that one to return. Um, I've also been streaming Kingdom Hearts, which is a wonderful use of my time. So twitch.tv forward slash regression, also with three S's. If you want to watch me... Oh bash maleficent on the forehead um i want to plug something that has nothing to do with anything that uh we make um 
which is that if you like this podcast, I have been listening to a podcast called Cocaine and Rhinestones, which is a sort of like documentary series about the history of country music. Uh, I think people should listen to that. Uh, I think it's great. Uh, I think it's fucking phenomenal. Yeah, everything you um, said sounds excellent about it. So, so uh, if if people remember if if people remember, you must remember this the uh, like Hollywood history podcast. It is a very 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 similar podcast to the point where um, when the host of Cocaine and Rhinestones says he doesn't like you, must remember this. I'm like, you're a fucking liar, you fucking liar piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. <laughs> Uh, so there we go. Yeah. Um, that is a wrap, folks. Uh, we'll be back next time with me, Autumn, and Boo. Bye. Bye.